6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 31 through 36. Okay, the way of deliverance, verses 5 through 7. David says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Man. Remember, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan told David this story about this Lord that had a lot of sheep. There was a poor guy that had just one sheep, little ewe lamb that he loved. The rich man had a visitor he wanted to honor. So he didn't take one of his lambs. He took this one, this man's only sheep, slaughtered it to serve the, his guest. And uh, David was so incensed by this story that uh, he thought that something should be done. And then Nathan looked David in the eye and says, you're the man. And David realized by analogy, he was that guy taking Uriah's wife when he could have had anybody in the kingdom. And so uh, he acknowledges sin before God. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest, forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And your reference here for yourself is 1 John 1 9. That's God's, that's the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a precious promise to cling to. David did. And his, and he, his transgression, he was, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And uh, God, if you will confess your sins before the throne, God will put the righteousness of Christ on your account and erase that debt. Then he goes on, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. What flood is he talking about? It could be Noah's. You can, it's just, it's just you treat it idiomatically if you like. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah again. Praise God. Now, David was forgiven for his sin, but that doesn't mean he is exempt from the effects of that sin, and he had a family of troubles. What transpired? Well, Bathsheba's son, the one she became pregnant with, died. So he, the first son died. David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar and then was slain by Absalom. You think you, your family has got problems? 2 Samuel 13. Absalom then goes on to try to seize the throne. He ends up getting killed by uh, David's general, Joab. 
And while David was, even while he was on his deathbed, Adonijah tried to take the scepter from Solomon. And Adonijah was slain, 1 Kings 1. And this is just a capsule of the, can you imagine the troubles and the tensions in that family? And uh, now Bathsheba's first surviving son becomes Solomon that Matthew builds his legal genealogy of Christ on. Bathsheba's second surviving son, a son by the name of Nathan, not the prophet, another son, is the one that Luke uses to identify Mary's genealogy, and that's a whole study. You know, call your attention to it another time. Okay, the way of deliverance. We now go to the joy of obedience, verses 8 through 11. David continues, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. He's quoting God here. That's God's term. God gave David the assurance of salvation. Boy, don't we relish in that if we really understand it. That, he, that David got back the joy of salvation that was restored to him if he remains obedient. Because then it continues some instruction here. There's a little humor thrown in here. Be not as the horse or as, or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with a bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. In other words, David was not to descend to that of an animal, impetuous like a horse and stubborn like a mule, if you will, is the suggestion. But you can't miss the humor, the humorous analogy there. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. This is one of the reasons I'm not sure this is really a penitential psalm. I really hear the psalm as an expression of joy by David, having been freed from the guilt of his sins. He opened this psalm with a joyful announcement of having been forgiven, and now he closes this with an exhortation to join him in celebrating the mercy of the Lord. This is really a psalm, while it has some pretty deep theology in it, it's basically a psalm of rejoicing. So that's my view for what it's worth. You, make, you chew on it, read it 25 or 30 times, and come to your own conclusion, okay? Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. This is the first time that instruments are mentioned in the book of Psalms. The harps, we think we understand. A psaltery is sort of like a zither. And uh, I'm fascinated with an instrument of ten strings. You can't find any other number of strings mentioned in the Bible. It's always ten strings. And I think that's kind of fascinating because... The most advanced theories of particle physics indicate that we live in a universe of 10 one-dimensional strings. It's a 10-dimensional universe of, of, uh, of uh, one-dimensional strings. So uh, for what it's worth, I think that's kind of interesting. Maybe it's just a coincidence. We'll see. Anyway, sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. This is a basis, of course, for the amplified version of, that we often hear you know, concerts in, right? Uh, loud noise, loud is apparently better than not loud. Okay, sing unto him a new song. Okay, we have new songs. Play skillfully with a loud noise. 
For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. By the way, not all songs are doctrinally correct. Any worship that is contrary to God's word will not be pleasing to the Lord. So it's important not to get too casual with our lyrics. We need to make sure they're doctrinally sound. It's fascinating to me how some of the great hymns are so rich in theology. Uh, some people quip about today's music. It's 7-Eleven music. Seven words repeated 11 times. And, and uh, that's done derogatorily. And, and uh, I'm not here to knock the current worship. But it, it, it's fascinating to me to contrast some of the rather popular choruses we sing today with the, the depth of theology that exists in the old hymns. And whenever you're in Scotland, I, was, I did a, a Bible study at Macbeth's Castle for a week. And when you're mixed with those Scotsmen, whether it's for lunch or anything, they sing about four or five songs before lunch and four or five songs after. They sing all the time. And the songs are rich. And you, know, you sometimes criticize the Presbyterians for not being in, deeply in the Word. On the one hand, uh, you begin to realize how deep the theology is in the songs they sing. It's pretty impressive sometimes. So I, that was interesting to me. But uh, anyway, let's move on. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Wow, that says a lot. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Verse 5, he loveth the righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. We also need to know that the God of the word is... We need to know the God of the Word as well as the Word of God. We spend a lot of time biblically studying the Word of God. We need to also get to understand the God of the Word. And by the Word of the Lord were the heavens made and the host of them by the breath of His mouth. It fascinates me that the information sciences are the foundational scientists of them all. And we're discovering that information sciences is at the root, the very foundation of all the sciences, especially biology. Microbiology is a study of, of information structures. And um, so is, the, so is our, now our understanding of the very nature of the universe. It's, it's an information problem. And it's interesting. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, indeed. And all the host of them by the breadth of his mouth. I think Paul Davies, the, the secular scientist, said it's as if the entire universe is nothing more than a thought in the mind of God. I think that's a... I have no idea what he meant, but I sure like the way he said it. Yeah. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in the storehouses. And that seems to echo Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It goes on. Check it out. Let's move on. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake it, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. <laughs> I always visualize Yule Brenner saying that. So let it be written, so let it be done. <laughs> the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. See, verse 8 indicates that, he hold, that his creation holds all without excuse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The creation is the ultimate manifestation. Well, no, I shouldn't put it that way. Is the fundamental uh, manifestation of the existence of God. And he holds us accountable. He holds us without excuse. It's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. Your notes there should just reread chapter 1. Verse 10 
The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The more, well, I think, by the way, that verse should have been the label for the United Nations. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the device of the people of none effect. Here we form an organization to bring peace, and they have an unblemished track record of failure. Everything they touch is turned sour. The more men oppose truth, the more truth prevails. We're learning that the hard way. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to, to all generations. Blessed, now this is the label, it should be on our courthouses and for our president, it should be blazing on Washington, D.C. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance, indeed. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. It's interesting, even in Genesis, it says God looks down and sees the agony of his people that led to the exodus. He looketh from heaven. God is watching. He knows what's going on. He beholdeth all the sons of men and daughters of men too, gals. Okay. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. And by the way, the word look in these words is to gaze intently is what the actual Hebrew word means. And Hebrews 4.12 emphasizes, he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And only he does. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. At the Battle of Ar Arabella, the Persians had over a million men and they were utterly put to rout by Alexander's 50,000. Alexander's 50,000 wiped out, well, actually put to rout, the Persian army, which, which somewhere between half a million and a million men. Changed the course of history. Napoleon had his grand army of half a million, well, 453,000 men that entered Russia. And they were reduced to 10,000 by Marshal Kutuzov's uh, uh, um, uh, strategy of retreat, defense in depth, and so on. That's what's celebrated in Tchaikovsky's Overture of 1812. Verse 17, a horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. That was the main vehicle in those days. <laughs> but Pharaoh's horses and chariots found it disastrous to pursue the Lord's anointed. They drowned in the very waters that brought Israel to safety. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. This psalm opens and closes with a theme of what? Joy. Joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. Our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. So my suggestion is what you might resolve to do in your own personal life is saturate yourself with psalms and see what happens.
Just pour yourself into them and see what it does to your personal life. Okay, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm, sort of. Uh, whenever you read that casually and then you check it out, you discover it ain't quite that simple. It turns out that it's a, an acrostic psalm, except it seems to skip the letter Vav for reasons we don't know. Now, Vav is often used as sort of a, a grammatical device. So, for some reason, it's not used in the sequence of acrostic, where each, each, each verse starts with the next successive letter of the alphabet. That's what we mean by an acrostic song. And it, it skips Vav here for some reason, and then at the end, it ends with a Tav, and then it has, a, an extra, it has an extra pay at the end. So it's an acrostic psalm, sort of. So why is it different? Nobody knows. Okay. But it's going to have four instructions to avoid tight situations. How many of you have been in a tight situation at one time or another? People without their hand up haven't been paying attention. Okay. First he starts out with bless the Lord, then seek the Lord, then fear the Lord, and then trust in the Lord. That sounds pretty straightforward. Bless the Lord to begin with, then seek, fear, and trust the Lord. Okay. It's a psalm of David, and this says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. It's alluding to this strange occasion where David pretended to be insane until the Philistines sent him away. And uh, uh, it, if you go to 1 Samuel 21, it uh, deals with that whole story. In 1 Samuel, the, king, the Philistine king is called Ashish. Here, it's called Abimelech. And you'll find people who have not done their homework, they say, see, the Bible has a contradiction. Here it says Abimelech, there it says Ahish. Well, Abimelech is a title. The Philistine kings were called Abimelech. The kings of Egypt were called pharaohs. That's a title, not a name. And uh, uh, so that's just, uh, when someone raises that as a quibble, that means they just haven't, they're, just, they're underinformed. But moving on. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Some of you may sound familiar because it's a chorus we often used to sing. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in thee, Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David managed to, by pretending to be insane, got the Philistines to kick him out of there. So he was delighted to be outside of enemy territory. You probably shouldn't have been there and been there in the first place. And, uh, but if you go through here, you notice all the verbs to bless, boast, magnify, exalt. This is an active thing. And the name Lord is used 16 times in this psalm. It's all about him, obviously. David continues, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him, they were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamped round about them that fear him and delighted uh, and delivered with, uh, del fear him and delivered him. Um, threefold witness in here. He saves, he keeps, and he satisfies in verses 4, 7, and 8. The angel of the Lord, that term is used three times in the Psalms, and many of the, uh, the more competent uh, commentators uh, tend to um, presume, maybe with correctness, that the angel of the Lord is a term for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And it never shows up in the New Testament because Christ is there in the New Testament. The angel of the Lord is a term that, uh, that, that experts differ on their opinions, but some believe it's a, they, they 
they believe and, 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 and support their, their views by a number of observations that uh, it may be a, a, the pre-incarnate Christ. In Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord Jesus himself says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So he's never gone. In Matthew uh, 28, 20, it says, Lo, I'm with you always. And so the idea that they then transfer to the Old Testament is that the angel of the Lord is always there. It's Christ in his pre-incarnate form. That's just a view. It's, uh, I don't know if it's correct, but at least be aware of, of that view uh, being around. David continues, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David really experienced that. He probably in his life saw young lions. He confronted these things. And uh, now verse Eight, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him is quoted in 1 Peter 2, verse 3, and also echoes in, in John 7 and other passages. Sounds familiar to our ears even here. And uh, verse 9 uh, says, O oh, fear the Lord, ye saints, for there's no want to him that fear him. In fact, those that fear the Lord need fear nothing else. That was Cromwell's famous line. And uh, the Old Testament equivalent is seek, the Lord, seek ye first his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Another New Testament equivalent is Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What's the most, three most important words in that verse? The famous Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. The first three words are the most important. You don't suspect, you don't hope. No, we know that all things work together for good. Not to everybody. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Come, you children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. These passages are quoted in 1 Peter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12. Uh, from 12 to 14 is, is the, the first three of these four verses are quoted in, by, in Peter's first letter. And... Uh, Desire what's good, speak what's true, pursue what is right, and expect what is best. That's the summary of this, of those. Okay. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. See, nowhere does David suggest that the life of faith is exempt from troubles. Rather, if we trust and call upon him, the Lord will see us through our troubles and make them a blessing to us and also to others. So God has a way of multiplying that blessing, not just to ourselves, but to others that may be impacted by it. One of the reasons you may be in troubles is to prepare you to minister to others who have similar situations. Pray that through. That's one of ten different reasons that Christians have trials. You want to check those out. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivered him out of them all. So that's verse 19. Excuse me, verse, uh, yeah. Verse 20 is the famous one. Quoted all through the Bible. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. That we just pass by that except for the fact that that's 
a requirement of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It's echoed again in Numbers 9, verse 12. And it's even highlighted by John in his gospel, John 19, 36. Very, very specific emphasis that while Jesus hung on the cross, they did not break his bones, even though this Roman soldier was ordered to. I'm sure he didn't refrain from doing that in order to make sure the scripture wasn't broken. At least he didn't realize that that was true. But in any case, it's echoed throughout the Old Testament. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. So it's an echo of the Messiah himself. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. And the word desolate means condemned. Condemned. Okay, we'll knock off another one here. The book of Psalms, Psalm 35, it's uh, also one of these imprecatory psalms, interestingly enough. And many people have troubles with imprecatory psalms. You have to remember the enemies that he's calling things down on were rebels against the Lord. The covenant people were protected under conditions of obedience, Leviticus 26 and all through the Old Testament. And... Uh, the battle between good and evil has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. We need to understand that. And you and I cannot remain neutral in this battle. It is a battle. Many New Testament readers are very offended as they read the imprecatory Psalms. It seems so uh, inappropriate. That's because we're not looking at the whole picture here. I want you to compare Jeremiah's continual... Um, tirade against the enemies of God. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 does the same thing. Jesus does in Matthew 23. And the martyrs in heaven continue this song in Revelation 6, calling down evil against the wicked. Psalm 35 talks about protecting me, the first 10 verses, rewarding me in the next uh, eight, and then vindicating me as it closes. Protect me, reward me, vindicate me. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.